Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ed Choice Chats, and specifically, the Cool Schools podcast. On today's episode, we are talking with Russ Gregg, who is the head of school in Minneapolis's Hope Academy. Hope Academy is an interesting school because it is a faith-based, classical education model inner-city school in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We have a wide-ranging conversation about both how the school operates, its pedagogical strategy, plans for expansion in the future, lots to dig in in this podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Russ Gregg of Minneapolis's Hope Academy. So maybe the best thing to do is start at the beginning. So how did the Hope Academy get started? Yeah, about uh, 27 years ago, my wife and I moved into an inner city area of, of Minneapolis. And after living there for eight years and our, our children became school age, uh, we became aware of just a gross misjustice, uh, injustice here in the inner city that my neighbors were not just getting a, a mediocre education, but some of the worst education in the country. And as we, as we thought about what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself, we, we concluded it meant that, that all of the advantages and opportunities that we wanted for our own kids, we should want for our neighbors. And at that point, we had uh, been driving our kids 10 miles across town to the wealthiest <laughs> neighborhood because we had the choice and the freedom to do that, something that my neighbors didn't have. And uh, I became so convicted of that that in the, in the fall of, of 2000, I uh, took the wild step to start a school for my inner city neighbors. And because the, we wanted a, a faith-based option for our own children, we decided that that's the kind of school we should seek to start for our neighbors. And so in uh, September of 2000, we started with three teachers, 35 kids in a, in a church basement in the inner city of Minneapolis. And so now, how many students do you serve now? So today, so 19 years later, we're serving 500 students. 70% of them are from free and reduced lunch homes of poverty in grades K through 12. And we've had uh, seven graduating classes already. So now, what makes Hope Academy unique? Well, it's a combination of three things, I think. So it's faith-based, and it's classical, and it's inner city. And so you can often find one or two of those things together, but uh, it's very, very rare to find all, all three of those operating together. So can you talk to me a little bit about classical education? It seems to me something that is just gaining in popularity all across the country. How, how do you envision classical education? What does that look like in your school? Yeah. Well, it, again, it goes back to the idea that, that we wanted to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so I had concluded that that's the, the kind of education I wanted for my own children, mainly for three reasons. One was that it, it had a level of rigor that was missing from most of the educational options that I had seen. Another key part of it is that it was rooted in virtue formation or character formation, that that was just as important a part of the education as, as the academics. Uh, is that we're aiming at, at transforming the heart of, of students. And then that, that we were using the greatest curriculum in the history of the world, <laughs> the, the, the kind of curriculum that had withstood the test of time. And, uh, and so kids were reading the great books, and they were engaging in Socratic discussions about those materials. And so all of those are parts that we want to incorporate into educating inner-city children as well. 
Now, I would imagine that maybe there was some pushback at the time when you had this idea, or you meet people with some skepticism today when you say, I mean, it seems like in lots of places around the country, the dominant mode of inner city schools or or a frequent sort of pedagogical tool of inner city schools is kind of direct instruction. You hear of these kind of no excuses schools with very rigorous discipline and Again, not exactly. I don't. I don't see a lot of Socratic dialogue, perhaps taking <laughs> place in, in in a lot of those schools. So I was just wondering, sort of. So why did you choose that particular model? And if there's maybe skeptical people listening that says, "Oh no, like that model could never work in the inner city." What What would your response to that be? Yeah, a couple of things. Mortimer Adler in his Paideia proposal said a, a very intriguing thing. He said, the education that's best for the best is best for all. It's very provocative, isn't it? Sure. And we believe that we have to guard against the soft bigotry of low expectations for urban children. We fight against the idea that there are two standards. There's a suburban standard of education and an urban standard. And what we found is just the opposite, that that if we expect virtuous moral behavior from inner-city children, that they rise to that. And that if we start to teach uh, Latin beginning in the fourth grade and teach five years of Latin, that, that they actually rise to that and enjoy that. And if we, if we teach the great books, <laughs> that, that well, it's a challenge. There's no doubt about that. It's, it's not easily done. But most important things in life are not, <laughs> are not easy to do. They, they are a challenge, but that, that students are indeed capable of, of rising to that. So that we, we trace back to the idea of the image of God being recognized in, in all children. And so, again, we don't disrespect inner-city children by thinking that they're incapable of rising to such standards. So how do you measure success? How do you know that what you're doing is working? Yeah, well, I think on, on a number of, of levels. You know, one thing that, that I look at is uh, the idea of retention in a variety of ways. I look at our students and families staying with us for the, the long term. We, we feel that our mission is really a, an eight to 10 year mission. When your students are starting so far below grade level and you're aiming to get them to college ready uh, by the end, you can't do that in four years. It's really a, an eight to 10 year kind of mission, but you're doing that with the most highly mobile group of, of families in the city. And so retention, is a huge piece to our success. We look at retention of teachers, and we've been blessed with teachers that have really committed to us for the long term, and that makes a big difference. We look at retention of donors because we take the typical financial model for uh, an independent school where 90% of the costs are paid by parent tuitions, and then they fundraise 10%. We do what we call the kingdom flip on that. And so all of our parents have some skin in the game and, and contribute 10% of the costs, but then we fundraise 90% uh, of the costs here, and we're seeing an amazing kind of retention of those sponsors or donors uh, upwards of over 95% a year renew their support. And so that's one, one way of, of looking at it. Another thing I look at is joy, <laughs> amazingly is that I believe that, that, that schools should be a, a joyful place. And so as I'm walking around, do I see students that are happy to be here and, and teachers who are happy to teach here? And there's a kind of, of joy 
in this place. I mean, I look at things like college placement, and we're finding that 95% of our graduates are being accepted at two- and four-year colleges. Probably the thing I, I love the most are stories about heart transformation, because as, as I mentioned before, faith formation and character development are super important. And so I get that from hearing amazing stories about the lives of our students that, that give evidence of that kind of faith formation. So I'd be interested to know about your retention strategy. So what are your retention strategies for students who, as you said, are highly mobile? And what are your retention strategies for teachers? Ah, good question. I, I think uh, among students, one thing in our upper school is about four or five years ago, we started a house system. If you think about Harry Potter, maybe that would give you some, some thoughts about that. But beginning in the sixth grade, every student in the upper school is assigned to one of eight houses for the remainder of their time here at Hope Academy. And those houses are led by the juniors and seniors. And so it gives them some authentic leadership roles, but it, it really connects students to uh, the broader community in the high school. They have monthly feasts that they have to organize. They have a monthly tournament that they compete in and, again, different things that, that connect them more, more uh, firmly to the school community so that students, again, say, I really enjoy and want to be at school at Hope Academy. Among teachers, you know, I think probably the, the most important thing is, and this is going to be, I think, kind of strange for most schools, but we believe that, that building a faith community among the staff is crucial. And so we start every day with a time of devotions and prayer together. And that has a, the experience of really knitting us to one another, that you feel a very, very strong sense of family. So both among the students and among the staff uh, that tend to connect us here for the long term. So you mentioned earlier that all of the parents of your students have skin in the game. So I'd be interested to know a little bit about your tuition model and, and, and how do you do that? Yeah. Well, tuition is, is actually only one part of it in a larger sense. So let me speak to both, is that we actually require all of our parents to sign a parent covenant of things that they're committing themselves to do in support of their child at the school. So we, we think instead of ignoring inner city parents like most schools do, we actively work to engage and involve those parents. And, and we go to some rather strange lengths to do that. For instance, in October of every year, we take three days where we don't have classes. And on those days, all of our teachers reach out and do a home visit with every single family in their classrooms. So for three days from eight in the morning till eight at night, they're out there visiting every single family in their, in their classrooms. And, and so our families know that every year their teacher is going to come over to visit them. And the purpose of that visit isn't to do a conference or to check in. It's really to build a friendship with those parents because we believe that parents are our children's first and most important teachers. Another thing that we do is the parents are required twice a year to come to school on Saturday with their children. We call it Parent Involvement Day. And so from 9 to noon, every single parent in the school is required to come on those two Parent Involvement Days. We take the first hour and a half or so and do a workshop for parents to equip them and, and build capacity in them to 
support their children. And then the second part, they get to go and, and do a classroom visit with their children and see what remarkable God-centered education looks like so they can begin to love that and, and support that. And then a, a third thing would be that we think that everybody's got to have skin in the game. You know, I often say to my parents, beware of any kind of uh, anything that's for free. Right? I, I, I tell them, you know, every day at about two o'clock, I get a call on my cell phone saying, "Congratulations, Mr. Greg, you just won a an all expenses trip to the Bahamas." And I and I ask them, "Well, what do you think I do next?" Everybody says, "You hang up." <laughs> and I said, exactly right, because everybody knows that uh, there is no such thing as a free lunch, and so everybody's got to have some skin in the game. So what that means for our parents is that every year we sit down and do a one on one tuition conference with every family, and we set their tuition for the coming year, and it ends up being uh, roughly uh, about 10% of their of their gross income. And uh, it, it's something that's doable for every family, and but it, it, it opens the door for them to be able to, to have a remarkable faith-based education for their children that would otherwise be, be impossible. But having some skin in the game is necessary for everyone to succeed. So if you could hop in a time machine and head back to 1999 or perhaps early 2000, right as you're beginning this endeavor, what advice would you give yourself? What lessons have you learned over this time period? Perhaps perhaps you learned the lessons the hard way, but if you could go back and, and give yourself some advice, what would you say? Well, I think one of the biggest mistakes is the mistake of not starting. <laughs> <laughs> right to see the 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 challenge is so big, particularly in you know about half the states of the country, they were not allowed to use public taxpayer dollars to support faith-based schools, and so the idea, well, then therefore we can't do anything. And what I'm wanting to advocate for is to say, no, no, there is a way forward. Instead of of public dollars, look at private philanthropy. And so for years, I avoided starting Hope Academy because I was fearful that it, it was no way. I, I knew that it would take millions and millions of dollars every year to give my neighbors in the inner city the same kind of education I wanted for myself. And I thought, well, that's just impossible. And instead, what I've learned over these last 19 years, it's more than possible that, <laughs> that this year, for instance, there's $5 million of private philanthropy and support to make Hope Academy possible. And it just keeps happening year after year after year with a lot of hard work. But I'd say that the biggest mistake I made was was putting off the, the starting of the school out of fear that it couldn't be done. And I'd say maybe another mistake, maybe that or lesson that I've learned is that the trust of the parents in the inner city can't be assumed. It, it's got to be earned. And so early on, I assumed that trust and was disappointed significantly and, and until I learned that really I haven't given any reason. And there's a whole lot of historical reasons to not trust a, uh, a white male like myself in, in starting a school and that I needed to, to earn that trust and mainly through personal sacrifice on behalf of my families, that trust was slowly earned over time. So now when you talk about cultivating private philanthropy, I mean, it sounds like you have every year a heck of a lot of money to raise. 
So I guess sort of two questions is, sort of how do you handle the, the stress and the worry of having to do that? And then how do you actually, how do you actually raise that money? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually sleep very well at, at night. I've got a great team for sure that, that's working with me to do this. But here's the, here's the key is I believe that there is a huge amount of public goodwill out there of people that, that are regularly seeing in the newspaper and, and watching on television the, the crisis of inner city education, and they want to do something about it. What they're lacking is a vehicle that they, that they believe is going to be successful in doing that. They've, they've seen that, that just pouring money into a system isn't going to move the needle. But when they find a school like Hope Academy that's genuinely moving the needle, where, where the students are achieving at, at three times the rate of their neighborhood schools, they're just so thrilled that, that finally there's something that's going to make a difference in changing the generational cycle of poverty in the, the families in the inner city. And they're actually delighted to get on board. And so then the, the real difficulty is helping people to become aware of, of a solution like Hope Academy. And so one of the things that we believe in is a show-and-tell model. <laughs> and so every month on the second Thursday of the month, we have what we call a tour of hope. It's just a 59-minute tour that, that people can come over the lunch hour and come and, and see what we're doing. They actually come in and visit a classroom and see with their own eyes what this, what this looks like. And, they're, and they hear the story about hope. They meet some of our, of our uh, high school students and hear from one of our parents. And by the end of that, they are just so convinced that, <laughs> that there, is, there is a hopeful thing going on in the inner city that they want to, to get involved in some in some way. And so I think last year we had something like 525 new visitors to come into the school. And, and so even as we continue to add more and more students, we are seeing success. And another key piece of that, Mike, is, is what we call the partner model. And so we actually connect every donor up with the student that they're helping. And a couple days a year, we have something called partner day where, where those, those partners get to come and, uh, for a couple hours and as a part of that, visit with the student that they're helping and have lunch with that student. And again, there, there's a, a relationship that's, that's built there that, that's made partners want to stay connected and help that student as long as they can. I, I just met with one partner this week who was with uh, two boys over a period of seven years. And now they've gone on to college, and he still is connecting with those, those students on a, on a weekly basis because he's so invested in their long-term success. That's wonderful. So sort of in, in closing our time together, I'd be interested to look to the future. So what does the next year hold, the next five years hold, the next 10 years hold? Are we going to are we going to see a Hope Academy north, uh, south, east, and west? Are we going to see growth within your own campus? What do you see in that kind of short, medium, and long term? Thanks. That's a great question. The, there are really two large initiatives. It's called Growing Hope and Spreading Hope. And so Growing Hope is enlarging our current campus to be able to serve 200 more students from the inner city. We've just raised about $8 million 
to build a second gymnasium and expand our cafeteria and add 10 more rooms to our current campus that will allow us to serve 200 more students at, at our current campus. That's called Growing Hope. At the same time, we're in the process of raising $2 million to spread Hope Academy type schools to other cities around the country. As Hope has become more and more of a national model, we felt that, that we had some responsibility to help other cities to develop their own Hope Academy style school in their cities. And so we started something called the Spreading Hope Network. You can look that up, you can Google that and get connected to that. And, and so our goal is to start 10 more Hope Academy style schools in major cities uh, around the country over the next 10 years. The first one started in uh, in Houston this fall, and we've got three more online to start this this coming fall in uh, near Raleigh and Cleveland and Oklahoma City. So, growing hope and spreading hope are are in the future. Well, I can't think of uh, two better things than trying to grow hope and spread hope. So, Russ Gregg of Hope Academy, thank you so much for joining us on the Cool Schools Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Who I tell you. Having to raise $5 million a year to keep a school going would probably set me a little more ill at ease than it did Russ, but I appreciate the confidence that he has in his abilities and the confidence that's going on in his school. There was so much to chew on in that podcast. I find myself Googling Mortimer Adler to learn a little bit more about what that gentleman had to say, but I think there was a lot to think about about both faith formation, forming young people, academic preparation, and the intersection of all of those. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As always, if you'd like to hear more or make it easier to get episodes of the Cool Schools podcast and all of the other great podcast content that we have here at EdChoice, please remember to subscribe. You can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. You can follow us on social media to find out all of the stuff that we put out, whether that's our research teams, our training and outreach teams, our state teams, anybody, all of our teams, all of the teams team up to put out dynamite content. And if you want that dynamite content, hop on Twitter, at EdChoice, find us on Facebook, check all of those different avenues out. And if you're, you know, maybe you're taking a little break from social media here in the new year. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, changing your relationship that you have to screens. You can sign up for emails, which I guess technically shows up on your screen, but in a little bit more manageable way. Go to edchoice.org, sign up for our email lists. You can customize the emails that get sent to you to just get information that's interesting and useful to you rather than being bombarded like social media does to you. So if you're interested in research or if you're interested in cool schools or any of those sorts of things, you can customize what's coming your way. And, you know, maybe maybe cancel out some of the noise in this incredibly noisy world that we live in. Finally, as always, I'm looking for cool schools to profile. So if you know of a cool school, maybe you teach in a cool school. Perhaps your child attends a cool school. Maybe you're envious of the cool school across the town and you'd like to know more about it. Please shoot us an email. Find us on social media. I'm at uh, on Twitter at MQ underscore McShane. You can hit us up at media at edchoice.org. Um, really, you could stand outside our building and shout at us. Look, any way you want to, I'm always on the lookout for new cool schools to profile in the Cool Schools podcast. So thanks so much for joining us. I look forward to chatting with you again soon about another cool school. Mm-hmm.